everyone, I'm Melissa. And I'm Rachel, and this is Cardinal Conversations. We are really excited about today's episode, but first we want to talk a little bit about why we're here. As you know, interprofessional education is very important. Melissa and I didn't know each other before because we're in different programs. I'm a graduating physical therapy student. And I'm a second year pharmacy student, and we're coming together to create this podcast. We also want to broaden the scope that we learn in the classroom and really dive into conversations that can be tough at times, but are so important to have. If you have any ideas or topics that interest you and you want us to talk about them, feel free to email us. You can find the email down below. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We're here with Professor Hawkins, who is an instructor of public health at MCPHS Boston. We're so excited to have you. And I think our first question for you would be, what first sparked your interest in the public health sector? Yeah, so um, when I was an undergraduate student, I was studying biology and I thought that I was going to go on to study, you know, work in a lab and study, you know, biomedicine, working with cells all day. But slowly over time, I realized that my least favorite classes were the classes where I was in a lab. So I figured that that's probably wasn't the best career choice for me. But I was still very much interested in medicine and health and, um, you know, figuring out different determinants of health and how to try to um, improve health for populations. Uh, So I still had that interest. And so eventually during my senior year of college, I had a friend who was in a public health program and they told me about it. I learned about, uh, they had an epidemiology option and that seemed like a great way for me to go because it would allow me to still be working uh, in the field of health, but not necessarily doing it in a lab setting. Uh, So that's what brought me to public, uh, public health and epidemiology. And then since then, after I got my master's degree, I worked for the department of public health for Uh, in Massachusetts for four years, primarily in the area of occupational health, which is my main research interest about how um, how workplace factors impact health. And during that same time, uh, I was uh, pursuing my doctoral degree, which I recently got um, last year now in 2020, and then um, started working at MCPHS as an instructor in 2018. Okay, awesome. And can I just ask, I I've taken one class on like kind of like occupational health, you know, as a physical therapy student, more like ergonomics, you know, things like that. Like what drew you into occupational health? Yeah, it was sort of a bit of an accident. I mean, I've always been interested in sort of in social factors and how like the social world creates health and work is a social factor. We don't always think about it that way, but it's, you know, the jobs that we do and why we end up in those jobs is oftentimes impacted by um, societal forces. And then also the protections that we have. Uh, whether, you know, regulations are in place are, it's, it's political in a lot of ways, but it was actually just the fact that the program that I was in, a lot of the researchers did research in that area that brought me into that. Um, but I found that I really liked it. I developed a, a passion for it. And so, yeah. And so it's related. So like, like with, um, you know, physical factors about a lot of injuries, uh, strain, pain, a lot of that is traced back to work. So from a clinical perspective, yeah, you try to treat that pain, when it happens, then from the public health perspective, we hope to try to stop it from happening in the first place. But obviously, that's not always possible. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's so interesting because I can't tell you, like, I'm in the clinic right now, how many workers comp mm-hmm. patients I see exactly. weekly, you know? Yeah. And so I feel like that's a huge sector that I feel like this doesn't get, like, a lot of attention, I feel like. so. No, yeah, it doesn't get nearly enough attention. It's a huge burden and probably underreported, in fact. So you're seeing patients that... Are getting workers comp so that means in those instances it's recognized that the pain is work-related 
I can almost guarantee that there are other patients that you're seeing who uh, have work-related pain, but they're not necessarily treating it that way. They're just saying, you know, this is something I developed in my day-to-day life. Um, or maybe they know, but they don't know about the, the fact that workers' comp is available. Um, and it's really important because if the work that you're doing, which oftentimes you're doing that work to make somebody money, um, is causing the pain, then it should be the, in my opinion, it should be the employers that are paying for it. And that's um, that's the whole theory behind workers' compensation. Um, but a lot of students, I mean, a lot of people in general are unaware of it. I mentioned students because I teach an occupational health class and I always ask them what they know about workers' comp. And there's some familiarity with the term and not necessarily um, how the system works or anything like that. Definitely, definitely. So since occupational health is mainly like your focus and uh, COVID-19, of course, has had a huge impact on that, um, I guess I would like you to explain more about like the issues that you see in the healthcare system um, that have been like brought to light because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's a lot. Um, so from my perspective, the way I came into it was I was thinking at first about workers. I can remember back in, uh, I guess it would have been early March when it started to become clear that this was going to be, you know, we knew it was, we knew about it since the beginning of the year, but it was going to be a pretty substantial problem in the U.S. and that we have these listservs where a lot of public health people talk. And so we were getting perspectives from different people. And I was thinking, obviously, about workers. So we were thinking, you know, what are the workplaces where there's going to be a particular current concern for exposure and obviously healthcare goes right to the top of that list because you're working in an environment where you're working with sick people and that's where people are going to go and and so um you know i think there was recognition of that early on but there ne- wasn't necessarily a lot of action that was being taken so my mom for instance she works as a uh, nurse in an operating room and i can remember again probably late february early march she brought a uh, letter back from like the, her office and was saying that it was talking about basically about the protocols about mask wearing and different elements. And it was clear that a lot of it was because there was an understanding that there was not enough masks and other personal protective equipment that was available in a healthcare setting. Um, and so uh, there wasn't a lot of preparation. And I think a lot of that actually, cause you asked about the healthcare industry, a lot of that actually comes from the sort of the financial uh, incentives within uh, healthcare and how it's structured and that, um, there's not a lot of incentive to, for example, be stockpiling equipment for situations like this. And I think that's why we saw, um, no, that a lot of places weren't necessarily prepared. And it took, and early on, especially, it was very clear that healthcare workers were the workers group that was being affected the most. So in late March, early April, um, the Boston Globe did a series of articles where they basically called hospitals and asked how many um, cases of coronavirus there were amongst their workers. Um, because I'm an epidemiologist, I was excited about that to see the data. And so I just, you know, because you can get lists of um, or like how many workers are employed in these different hospitals. And I just, you know, did a back of the envelope calculation just to see what the rates were. And it was like three to four times higher than than the general population. Oh, so it's clear that, yeah, so it was, it was, yeah. But unfortunately, in that same article, there were some people from the hospitals that was basically saying, no, for the most part, this isn't happening in the hospital setting. This is happening this is happening in community exposure. And that just everybody in the occupational health community that that was, um, you know, not reasonable because it was when we were going into lockdowns and quarantines, these people were basically only going to be in public when they were working with patients. And and there's no way that they'd be in public so much that they would be getting that much higher rates. I mean, sure, some of it is. And that's one of the complications actually with this is you can never, you can almost never know for certain where the the virus was um, contracted. But I think to a certain extent, there should be um, a bit of a presumption 
about what's happening. But I think over time we have seen some changes and and uh, some more protections being introduced. And, and as we've understood the real nature of it and the best way to protect workers, it has changed within healthcare. But unfortunately, I don't think we have seen that same uh, understanding in other industries. Um, so uh, recently there was a paper that we published, me and a few other researchers that was looking at mortality amongst workers, uh, basically mortality rates from coronavirus in Massachusetts uh, according to occupation and, and healthcare support workers were at the top of the list, but shortly after that was uh, transportation workers and their group that it makes sense that they'd be so exposed, but I don't think there's been the same efforts to protect them. Um, early in, early in the year, there was a bus driver, I believe it was in Detroit and he posted a video where he was basically talking when he had a, a, a rider come onto the bus who was coughing and sneezing and was refusing to wear a mask and he was basically saying we need to you know we you need to do this to protect us because what are they doing there seeing a lot of people and in a lot of cases in relatively closed quarters with little um ventilation so so um and unfortunately that it's you know a tragedy but he actually ended up dying from coronavirus a few weeks later after he posted that video and it um i was hoping that that would bring a bit more attention to, to transportation workers as being at a particularly high risk. But um, we see, like I said, we see the same patterns. Then also food workers too. You see them, um, even even uh, cooks actually, uh, California did a study where cooks had a very high mortality rate from coronavirus. And then uh, there have been some news stories that have looked specifically at uh, um, food manufacturing workers, especially in uh, meat processing plants, um, a heavily, uh, um, mostly immigrant workforce, uh, but they're working in cold environments, dry environments where it's easier for the for the virus to spread. So, you know, I went through a lot there, but just basically talking about there's a lot of a uh, lot of reason to be looking at these um, occupational issues. Yeah, that's very interesting. I never even not that I didn't think of it, but you only hear on the news like the healthcare worker mm -hmm. aspect of it. So there's so many other people that are affected by it, and they need to have like that support by everyone for PPE and, and to keep them protected. You know, exactly. yeah. it's a good outlook on it. Yeah, and, and it's and people think of healthcare, which is you know good because obviously those workers, but oftentimes we think about hospital workers, particularly, but healthcare is a whole industry, as, as you two know, I'm sure, but working in environments other than hospitals. So I think, you know, the nursing homes have gotten some recognition, but then there's also um, increasingly a lot of home health aides. And they're a group that actually, so people that will um, go and do different health services within somebody's home, and they're not going to have the protections that might be available in a hospital setting in a lot of cases. And they're actually another group, um, nursing assistants and jobs like that, where we're seeing high rates of, of mortality. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I didn't even think about the, you know, I worked in a skilled nursing facility for my first clinical, which is like the end of last year. And I didn't even think about the people who like, you know, we likely had the resources of like that big nursing facility mm -hmm. so that we had the correct PPE to keep ourselves safe. But then, you know, like you're saying that these people who go into individual people's homes, like do mm -hmm. they have the correct, and then you don't know what kind of environment you're walking into. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we know that you've done a lot of work this past year on COVID health disparities. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk like a little bit more about that work you've done? Yeah, so again, when these sort of early conversations were happening about coronavirus, you know, unfortunately, it was anticipated that, like with a lot of health outcomes, we were going to see differences in risk according to different um, factors. And especially race and ethnicity was one that emerged right away 
for a lot of reasons that, that we talk about in, in the public health classes that we teach in, in, the, in the program here and in other classes as well, we see higher rates of disease and mortality amongst particularly Black Americans, um, but also Hispanic Americans and Native Americans. Um, and so there was a recognition that we were probably gonna see something similar with coronavirus. And it turns out we did. Um, pretty soon it became clear as the data started to come in, which was actually a challenge early on. Um, so like we can't study a problem unless we know about it. Um, and to understand racial disparities in coronavirus, we have to know, for example, when somebody gets tested and they test positive, what was the race and ethnicity of that person? And it was, I wanna say in mid to late April that Massachusetts started releasing that information. But even in most cases, about like 50% of the cases didn't have any information. It was just, it wasn't recorded or they weren't able to access it. But even with all that missing data, it became clear that, um, that there were higher rates amongst particularly, um, well actually in Massachusetts in particular, uh, um, the black community and then the Hispanic community, we saw higher rates. And slowly over time, the data that was collected became better. And then, uh, even more, I mean, so that's bad enough. Actually, when you look at mortality too, the disparities are even higher. And so we know that the biggest risk factor for dying from coronavirus is age. And you see disparities across the age groups, but particularly amongst the youngest group is where you saw the, um, the greatest disparities in terms of um, mortality from coronavirus. Um, so this is reflected across the board, but you see it even more stark in younger groups. Um, and so again, being an occupational health researcher, that was an area that I wanted to undercover, uh, you know, research a little bit more. And so there's a phenomena that we refer to that's known as um, occupational segregation. And so it can mean a lot in different situations, but fundamentally when we're talking about race and ethnicity, it means that you see different employment patterns according to race and ethnicity. So in particular, I mean, there's a lot, I already referred to it a little bit when I was talking about the, um, the food processing workers that you see that's a very Hispanic industry. And that's what you were seeing. You were seeing a lot of cases amongst Hispanic, uh, Hispanics in certain parts of the country where there was, there's a lot of meat packing because of that. Um, healthcare is actually a very heavily uh, uh, disproportionately uh, black workforce. You see a lot of black workers that are represented there and then transportation too. So one of the early uh, studies that I did about this was I looked at, we have information about, um, about the likelihood of exposure to pathogens and also the um, proximity, like whether you work in close contact or work in close proximity to other people's according to occupation. And we also have employment information by race and ethnicity for, uh, for being in particular occupations. So what I did was I found that uh, black and Hispanic workers were more likely to be employed in jobs with, with a higher risk of being exposed to infections and also close proximity to others. And on top of that, um, industries, which is different than occupation, like, like occupation is what you do, industries where you work. So you could be a janitor, which would be a job, but you could be a janitor in a university, so your sector would be education, or in a hospital, for instance, which would be in the healthcare setting. So that's how they determine like the essential, which is all that conversations about what exactly is essential. It's not about your job, it's about where you work, sort of. That's how they tried to define it. Um, and so we could also look at race and ethnicity patterns according to our employment within industries. And again, Black and Hispanic workers were more likely to be employed in, in uh, industries that would usually be classified as essential industries. So again, another reason why they're contributing to those patterns. But there are other factors, there's so many other factors as well. Um, you can talk about uh, communities where people live, uh, some of the highest hit 
communities in Massachusetts. So for example, there's a um, coronavirus webinar series that I helped help put together with some other faculty. And uh, we had um, Carly Levy, who's the director of the Masters of Public Health program. She's been doing a lot of work at the community level and she brought in some uh, people who have been working in Chelsea, uh, Massachusetts. And that was the, by far the highest tech community in Massachusetts and um, heavily Hispanic population in Chelsea. So we're talking about cities where there are differences. And then just historical factors, for example, um, different treatment in the, in the healthcare industry. There have been cases where um, black patients have reported um, doctors, nurses not taking their symptoms as seriously as they do white patients. And there was actually another news story. I, I wish I remembered um, her name, but it was it was a she was actually a, a, a healthcare worker herself. But she was she had coronavirus and she was talking about how she was being treated differently. And then uh, different access to, to health insurance and just having the quality of healthcare that's available that also contributes to it. So there's a lot of factors, and they're really all compounded and they've existed for long before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has really brought them to life in a, in a more obvious way. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, Rachel wants to talk to you a little about like moving forward, like a prevention effort on our part. But before she asks you that, um, you were kind of saying like the data has started to like roll in, like you were seeing these trends, you know, like you said, like it's these issues have been going on for like a very long time, mm -hmm. but like COVID kind of like really emphasize them I would say um do you think like numbers wise like you know we have some data that's like coming in that you've worked off of do you think like when do you think we'll have like a really clear picture of like really what the detriments were of this pandemic do you think it'll be like years before all that information is like really really collected or yeah it's a, yeah it's a good it's a really good question because that's one of the complications in doing what I do epidemiology is that you can't tell the story and you help tell you have the data and you can't and you can't do prevention, like you know, said, we're going to talk about in a minute, until you know where to focus that prevention. And I think you're right. The full, uh, the full burden, the full effect of this pandemic won't be clear for some time. We do, fortunately, though, again, because it's been recognized there had been some efforts to get data out there sooner. So, for example, I said I did a study with death certificate data. I've been, I've studied death certificates for a long time. It's actually what I did my uh, dissertation about. Um, you know, a different topic, but still using death certificates. And I would get data about 28, I'm trying to think like in 2018, I was able to get data for deaths that occurred in 2015. So that shows you some of the data that you see, um, or the, the, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the delay you see in getting access to the data. Um, but this year they've been a bit more, eventually it became a little bit more easy to, easy to get access to that data. But even the work that I'm doing about coronavirus, like looking at coronavirus deaths, that's only, it's a big piece, but it's one piece of the, the impacts, just talking about the health impacts. There have been studies that have done that have looked at, for example, they've compared mortality rates this year to 2019, 2020, or 2018, the years coming before. And what they found was there were more deaths this year, um, but the increased difference was not completely attributable to coronavirus deaths. So it's like if you added, if you just took away the coronavirus deaths, there would still be more deaths, substantially more this year than were in previous years. And that what's that telling you is, well, some of it might be some coronavirus deaths might have gone um, unnoticed and not properly categorized. We always have issues with that with data. And that probably did happen, especially in the early days of the pandemic. But also we're probably seeing other causes of death, for example, people forgoing medical treatment because they don't want to go in hospital settings for fear 
Um, but then also just the mental health strain of the current situation. I think that's going to be something that's going to take a lot of work. So for example, in the U.S., we've uh, before the coronavirus pandemic happened, we've been having other uh, epidemics as well. We've had an epidemic of drug overdoses. We've had an epidemic of suicide as well. And there's good reason to think that the coronavirus pandemic might have exacerbated those issues. Yeah. Wow. I had never even thought about that because I would have assumed, you know, if you'd asked me, do I think like the deaths have increased in like the previous years, I would have been like, yeah, we have, you know, global pandemic going on. And I didn't even think about like the fact that one, I think you're so right that people are not going to the hospital as soon as they should because they're scared of hospitals because they're scared of contracting um, mm -hmm. the virus. And then also just like, I mean, I think the mental health aspect of being in a pandemic for almost close to a year now has taken like such, such like, I mean, almost like an unmeasurable toll on people. Yeah. Um, wow. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. yeah. That's very, very interesting. So we saw that in an article that you wrote uh, in The Guardian, you said, and I quote, too often black workers have shouldered an unequal share of the burden in our nation's, sorry, in our national struggles. Uh, we should do everything we can to prevent the current pandemic from adding to this history. So what are some ways that we can um, aid in the prevention efforts? Yeah, well, I think the first step, I mean, again, because the focus was so much on workers, I think there needs to be um, a recognition of the importance of work for health. So, um, you know, we spend, there's been estimates that have said, basically, I forget the exact numbers, but close to 30% of our waking hours, if you assume somebody works a full-time job, essentially from their 20s until 65 in the workplace. So obviously something, the place that we spend that much time is going to matter for our health. And that's something that we, you know, most of us share, right? We're, we, we, we are workers, even though we might do very different things. Um, so I think that understanding can go a long way. We also need to increase the, the, um, the rules that are in place for protecting workers' health. Fortunately, um, unlike some of the other factors that are contributing to, um, to health disparities that we see, we do have mechanisms to protect workers. We talked about workers' compensation already. There was also OSHA, which has existed since the early 1970s that is there to regulate and protect workers. Unfortunately, what's been happening really, um, it's a long-term trend, but we've been seeing less, um, uh, less investment in OSHA and less ability of OSHA to really inspect and regulate workplaces. So I think one thing that we need is to have a, um, uh, collective understanding that we need to start supporting these things that we, we already have in place. There are other factors as well. So one good thing I think that happened was in the early days of the pandemic, the federal government instituted paid sick leave. And that's been something that uh, I've been advocating for for a while. And a lot of people in the public health community, public health, occupational health community have, um, you know, even before a pandemic, just because it seems insane that in the United States, if you get sick, um, you're not guaranteed a right to take time off from work with, and still um, get paid. And that causes a lot of problems. It exacerbates an epidemic because people are incentivized to keep working when they're sick. Um, I studied opioids, uh, but we see something similar with opioids is that if somebody gets injured and they can't take time off, then they're encouraged to keep taking opioids because that's a way to deal with the pain that they're dealing with at the workplace. Um, so I'm hoping that they will understand that we need to, you know, introduce these protections, not just for the good of the workers. I mean, I think they're good enough themselves, but just to protect all of us. 
Uh, there are other, I mean, going more far afield, but things like maternity leave is also a protection that, that I think, you know, not necessarily maybe directly related to the pandemic, but is also something that you would want to make available. Again, something that some people will be surprised to hear is not available uh, in the US. And then I think, you know, just understanding how important health is and how we should uh, be investing in it more. Uh, I mean, I haven't even talked about healthcare, but just the fact that we have so much of the country that doesn't have access to healthcare and how that, you know, is bad for those people, but also can make situations like this worse as well. Yeah, that's crazy that um, you said that you see a decline in what like OSHA can actually do for people because I feel like in school they push like learn about this this is great but if you're saying that there's like a decline in what it's actually being able to help that's it's pretty uh interesting yeah, even when they do intervene like the um uh like I think Amazon got fined for, I don't remember what it was but you know they got fined for some of those happening in the warehouses and they can you know it's just like a pittance to the amount of money that they actually make so it's not even something that's really going to necessarily be a concern for them because they the, the fines themselves will be very low and then oftentimes they'll appeal it and it'll get lowered and lowered more there's actually um another this is a podcast is a podcast called reveal that actually did some good uh work about about um, talking to amazon amazon workers and then also um tesla workers as well about some of the uh the injuries that they faced at work and how there was basically not a lot of protection that was available for them wow yeah, and like I think, I mean, I think the whole, um, you know, people getting injured and having to rely on like op opioids um, to continue to like get through their workday, I think that really resonates with me because I have patients come in for pain and I'm like, okay, like we can get this fixed with physical therapy. You come in, you know, once a week for a couple of weeks and they're like, I can come in like maybe once every six weeks because I, I, I can't get the you know, the hour, hour and a half off of work once a week to come in here so I could be like healthy and pain free. And so that's just like, kind of like, okay, well you don't want to live with pain. And so they turn to like yeah. you know, other measures and yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's you know, it's a tragedy and you're seeing that firsthand even now, even with the recognition that of the, you know, the devastation that that, that uh, opioid addiction and opioid uh, use disorder has caused that still we're not giving, making that available to people who need it, like the treatment that you're, you're providing. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's a, it's a, the, sort of the correct way to be dealing with pain um yeah right yeah so um like moving forward how do you like personally think like health care is gonna health health care is gonna change like due to us going through this COVID-19 pandemic yeah yeah I think that's the hardest question right trying to predict what's good what's it's, it's a very hard question yeah. I no, but I think it's the important one because right I mean again hopefully there'll just be more recognition in the future who knows? I mean, so it's it's almost like, you know, poetic in a bizarre way that the last time we had a global pandemic was almost exactly 100 years ago with the Spanish flu pandemic. It started in about 1918. Um, and what I've heard is that, you know, I learned about it in school. I teach it, I teach it to my students in school. But I heard for a long time afterwards, there was a little bit of a forgetting that happened and it almost had to be rediscovered what happened. And some people say that might have been because of the trauma. Uh, the Spanish flu pandemic was, you know, another respiratory disease, but it was the flu. Um, so it was a different type of virus. But I mean, a lot of the ways it was spreading were similar. But one difference about it was that it had, um, it affected very young people, which, you know, obviously coronavirus is dangerous for everybody. But one thing is that it seems to be, you know, less deadly, as we talked about, for, for very young people. We, um, but then just like coronavirus, it was also very deadly for old people. But then also, um, like the 20, 20 to 40 year old age group 
was also not quite as bad as for young people and old people. There was a spike in mortality amongst this group. So it was a little bit, you know, even more traumatic. But that's one thing that I think could be a concern is that maybe when this is all over, there's going to be a little bit of a understandable desire to just move on. And obviously we need to move on. But I think as we move on, we have to think about the the systems that we have in place and how they, in a lot of ways, can contribute to situations like this. Um, you know, and there's a, there's a lot to say about that. That I mean, we've seen how other countries have handled it better than, for example, our own country. And there's vastly different right. countries, right? I mean, in, in East Asia, you saw, uh, you know, a lot of countries that were able to get it under control fairly early. But also, you know, you can say maybe they have different, you know, political systems or different cultures. But New Zealand, for instance, obviously an island, so it could be a little bit easier for them in that respect, but has a political and a, a culture that's a little bit more similar to the United States. So I think we have to learn, you know, what works in different places. Um, and again, I mean, I'm coming back to the same thing, but I think recognizing how important health in general is and protecting it, and uh, I've heard the term used in such an important term, prevention, you know, trying to stop this from happening in the first place gets so much more difficult when you're trying to, you know, um, cure it or, or stop it after it's already been happened, happen is gonna be particularly important. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what, you know, what this might mean for how we, for example, approach paying for healthcare, how we approach, how we organize the healthcare system in this country. But it's going to be, you know, it's going to, we'll see, I guess is the best answer I can see. But I think, I'm hoping there will be some changes. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, like you said, like, I think that's the big, important question, but also like one of the hardest questions to answer. And like you said, like, I think at the end of the day, it's a we'll see. But, you know, it's kind of like a, I really hope that, you know, we do see some changes. Exactly. Um, and I know we just said that was kind of like the big question. We do have two more questions for you, sure. um, kind of just about the vaccine. Sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the vaccine right now. You know, um, I'm really excited. I'm set to get my first um, dose within the next like one or two weeks. So I'm really excited about that. But um, what would you say to someone who is like anxious about you know receiving the COVID vaccine. Yeah. I mean, I think the point to start from is to be understanding with people, right? Because there's a lot of reasons. I mean, something's new, and that and that's sort of like cognitively. I think a lot of us get frightened by new things, and just you know, putting something into our body can be frightening. And I know I teach public health. I don't even like taking like ibuprofen, for instance, not because I think it's dangerous, because I just like maybe if I can avoid it, it's just better not to not to even take it. So it's understandable that. So that's one. I think that's just the first part is to not try to. Uh, you know, push, you know, push back too hard, but just try to approach people from where they're coming from. But what I'll say is that this has been studied. You can go and, you, and I'm an epidemiologist, so I'm able to look at the data and have a good sense and very few adverse events. Oh, sorry, just serious adverse events. There are side effects. People have pain in their arm. People have high temperatures, but they are, they're actually a sign. And I think this is one of the comforting things. That's a sign that it's working, that it's doing what it's supposed to do. If you have a temperature, it's because your immune system is reacting and treating the uh, the the, well, I guess the the spike protein that's being created by the mRNA vaccine in the right way. And so I think that's comforting. And, and I think also just hearing stories, I think seeing more people like yourself who are getting it and talking to people, then that can make people feel comfortable. I've had a number of students now, because so many students at MCPHS work in healthcare, We've gotten it and, um, you know, they've all had, you know, some of the minor side effects, but none of them have had any, I shouldn't say all of them, but some of them had the minor side effects, but none of them had had anything serious. And I think the more that that's out there and especially knowing somebody, I think that is, that's so key because yeah, 
you can throw that. This is what I do for a job, right? I start analyze data, but I know that's not the best way to necessarily communicate with people. I think seeing things firsthand is 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 the best way, and it's, I think that's in the long run, long run, what will make people feel hopefully more comfortable with it. Yeah. yeah, I've actually gotten both of my uh, vaccines. So the first shot, I just had a sore arm. Second one, like you said, I did have the fever, but it went away within a day, to be honest, even less. And so it's, it's yeah. totally fine to get the shot. <laughs> and I, want, I, I, I shouldn't say too much about this, but the, um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, oh, yeah. it seems like, it, which is one shot, which is nice. It, from what I read, and again, it was just one, one thing I was reading, it might have fewer side effects. It's also slightly less effective, but, um, um, but you know, it's sort of like a, a uh, you know, weighing the, <laughs> the benefits. And I think the key, the most important thing, and this is one of the huge, biggest challenges about anything in public health is that you think about getting the vaccine, I think about getting the vaccine is something, it's protecting me, and that's true. But the reason it matters is because it's protecting everybody. And that's the key is that it has to be happening at a, at a high population level. So even if, so I was amazed when the data started coming out about the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, about how effective they were, which is great, but they didn't even need to be quite that effective. It was like, they need to be at least 50% effective was roughly the estimate in order to have population level effects. So even if the Johnson and Johnson is slightly less effective at the individual level, if everybody, even if that was the only vaccine we had, if everybody had that, we would be very well protected because even the the low end for the Johnson and Johnsons, um, for example, better than most flu vaccines are. So it's um, it's something that yeah, again, but again, it's hard to think that way that this sort of population level. Yeah, I think the education part of it too really needs to be had. Like when you're, I'm a pharmacist, so well, I'm not a pharmacist. I'm a student pharmacist, so I am allowed to give immunizations. Um, so I think the education part, when you're about to administer it, like you may have some side effects to this, such as A, B, and C. But this is just your body doing what it's supposed to be doing, and there's no need to worry or fear that this is happening. Like. It's just the normal course, so. And I think, yeah, someone like you who's giving it out, I think you're one of the best people to be communicating that because you can talk about how many people, I mean, obviously you're not, well, you're seeing people after they've gone their first dose in a lot of cases, but you're seeing how many people are getting it and you're not seeing, you know, bad, adverse, really harmful reactions happening amongst people. And I think that's the key. Because um, what can happen though, is there'll be one story about somebody that had something, you know, really bad happened after a vaccine. And you don't even know because like, bad things happen just in the general population, right? But then that one story, if it, the media covers it a lot, can get into everybody's head and they're always going to associate it with that, even though it's, you know, something that's, because at this point, I mean, I don't even know. I saw today that I think at least, I think finally in Massachusetts, we're catching up. I think it was like, uh, uh, I want to say like over a million people have gotten their first dose of the vaccine at this point, which is really good news. And so just think about that. And you haven't been hearing massive horror stories. So that tells you that it's, um, it's safe. Absolutely. Yeah. So it kind of on the same aspect, but um, you mentioned previously that people are kind of over the pandemic. Like we just want, like get the vaccine, stop wearing masks it to be done. But for the time being, do you have any tips um, that we can give either family members, friends, our patients coming in that are just, they don't believe in or reluctant to wear masks, social distance, and just how to keep your cool and like how to start that conversation with people. It's really complicated, isn't it? I mean, I think I've been fortunate overall on that person because I mean, you're 
uh, you know, working in clinical types of settings, you probably might see some of this more. But I mean, I think one of the main messages, and I wish we had gone this through sooner, is that the more we do now, the sooner we can get this over with, right? There probably was a period, I don't know when, I mean, this again, you brought up earlier about trying to figure out everything that happened. It's probably gonna take us years to figure it out. There probably was a period that if we had had a much more extreme reaction, everybody wearing masks, uh, much more stringent lockdowns, that it could have gotten under control. Um, and obviously we're long past that now, but I think, well, I mean, I think this might be the, the, the key message is that, you know, it's like, it's a cliche, but the, the finish line's in sight right now. And I think every death in every case of coronavirus is a tragedy, but the ones that have happened since the vaccine has become available have been even more tragic because they're, you know, the things that really could have been prevented. And I think that's one of the key messages is that, yeah, it seems like we've been doing this for almost a year now and it's just, we're tired with it, but of it, but it, it, it is, this is the time when we're going to be really close. Theoretically, just today it was announced, I think 200 mil, million vaccines will be available uh, by July. So that doesn't mean people will have gone vaccinated by that point, but that says that we're, this is going to happen and we can get this available and hopefully by next fall um, we'll be there. So I think that's the thing is that we'll, we just got to just hang on a little bit longer. And, and just right now it's, it's really key. Yeah, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think that that empathy aspect is like so important. It's so easy to get like maybe angry and like frustrated, mm -hmm. be yeah. like, why can't like everyone needs to do their part. But I think just like getting down their level being like, hey, like I'm over it too. I'm frustrated too. Like I would love to go and like visit my family, but we just all, all of us need to keep doing this a little longer exactly. so that it can be safe for everybody. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for yes, coming thank on. You. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. This is great. I'm glad you're doing this podcast. I think it's going to be, uh, reach a lot of people. I think everybody's, uh, especially, you know, in the current situation, I think podcasts will probably become even more popular, but uh, I think this is something that will be very good. Mm -hmm.